5: welcome 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 back to the bob left sets podcast my guest today is a special treat truly legendary skier Bodie miller Bodie, good to have you here
6: how's it going how often do you ski these days uh more or less every day so did you go out today I didn't. Today was one of my, one of my bad, bad days. Um, I was on, in front of this computer all day, which was my least favorite thing maybe, but, um, yeah, it's usually, it's been, I probably had 55 days this year. So it's, it's a lot. I mean, it's not, it's not what it used to be, but yeah, it's a lot of skiing.
5: Okay. Do you still enjoy it as much?
6: As much is pretty subjective, but I enjoy it a lot. I enjoy going with my kids and just farting around. I can ski with with anybody and have a good time. I, I think more or less I like being outside. I would be a really good golf caddy. Um, I, I golf a lot and I could give two shits about hitting the ball. I just like being outside and walking around. So I think as a caddy, I'd carry the bag and <laughs> give advice and um, enjoy it probably three times more than I enjoy golf. But um, yeah, I still, you know, the other day we had a little powder and I, and I, ran a couple of steep shoots with a good young friend of mine who's I've known since he was born, um, since he's 20 years younger than me and my older sister's best friend's kid. And it was, there was a unique pleasure that I don't know that I've ever really felt before, uh, seeing a kid who I knew from when he was born. And I was a huge influence on his life being that we're from the same town and watching him, uh, you know, just kill these shoots at, at Yellowstone and Big Sky. And, um. There's definitely a special pleasure to that, but I enjoy just the, all of it about skiing.
5: Now, I certainly skied Big Sky. What shoots did you ski?
6: Uh, in this case, we were actually we hiked over way over on the Dakota side, so the side that faces kind of the south and and uh, we we rode up Dakota, we rode up um, Shedhorn, and we hiked up a little bit, and then we traversed far to the backside, kind of the out outskirts of what Big Sky uh, limits are, and we. We ran a couple of shoots that kind of face towards, I guess, the the east. Um, I don't know if they even have names over there. I don't know that anybody really gets to them because you'd have to go off the tram and ski down that kind of back ridge and then drop into the Dakota Bowl. But that that wasn't the better stuff. Honestly, the better stuff was in YC, um, just off of the the shoulder there, and we we went over to there's pinnacle and and corner pocket and they're just you know they're short and easy which is perfect for me because my I'm not as fit as I once was so it's nice that I'm not doing 4000 continuous vertical but um it was yeah it was, it was awesome to watch somebody who I'd known since they were a kid ski in a lot of ways better than I was
5: now I've certainly skied a ton not as much as you but at this point in time unless it's a really stormy day which I enjoy I find it much more enjoyable if I'm with somebody. Is that also your experience?
6: I like both, honestly. I think for me, I'm not a I'm not a meditative person um, in terms of sitting still and being quiet. But skiing gives me that, and it did when I was young. So I was really kind of born into it. I you know skied at Cannon my formative years, Cannon Mountain, and I skied every day the mountain was open for three years, and there you'd routinely on a on a minus fifteen or minus twenty day blowing 25, 30 miles an hour, you'd have four or five people on the whole mountain. So I was riding the chairlift and then the PBD chairs 17 minutes, um, you know, the Hong Kong chair was 12 minutes. So I had these intermittent blocks between active action where I'm, you know, trying to ski uh of like totally serene silence and uh just looking at nature and that was my meditation so i think i I revert back to that really easily so for me skiing alone is different i think than a lot of people but like i said that was a unique opportunity the other day to ski with seamus was really a I I didn't expect to enjoy it as much as I did because it was disproportionate to just good conversation on the chairlift. I really enjoyed the actual skiing and watching him ski.
5: Now, skiing in that cold weather, I know I still have toes at this very moment that are tingling and I'm sitting inside. To what degree have you gotten frostbite and to what degree is your body banged up from being on the circuit?
6: (laughs) Uh, You know, I'm, I'm actually not too banged up. My back is a bit sore. I wake up you know, the stiff back in the morning. I'm not sure how much of that's my mattress that you can see in the background here or, uh, or just my, you know, 25 years of racing at a high level. But, um, but you know, I'm, I'm super thankful, remarkably lucky considering the crashes I took and the the longevity of my career in a really high risk, low margin, high consequence, uh, sport. But in terms of frostbite and stuff, I was am I was gifted with Raynaud's. I don't know if you know Raynaud's disease. My it's girlfriend kind of has certain, it.
5: I know what you're talking about.
6: Kind of a circulatory uh, anomaly, but done correctly and managed correctly, I think Raynaud's is actually a gift for those of us who uh, are cold weather athletes because my hands get really stiff and white and un uncoordinated really quickly so like I can be in the pool in California and it's probably pools 80 degrees or 85 degrees and my heels will get all white my hands get all white and I can't really my dexterity goes away but they don't get frostbite ever I mean I've been in minus 35 and I've had little little bits of frostbite on my knuckles from you know certain things but in general Compared to the people around me in Maine, when I was at boarding school or at Cannon, um, or even on the World Cup in certain instances with super tight boots and out there for you know four or five hours at a time in minus thirty, um, I, I was remarkably lucky. And I think that Reynaud's actually because of the capillary reflex, where everything crunches down, somehow it it actually prevents frostbite to some degree.
5: Wow. That's pretty interesting. Okay.
6: It's my own philosophy. You can't, I don't want to get too scientific on you. No, no, I want to get plenty (laughs)
5: scientific. That's what's great. Okay. You have a new education initiative. Can you tell us about that?
6: Yeah. ICL is uh, Institute for Civic Leadership. It comes really like, I'm, I'm sort of the figurehead for it, although I've supported it for 16 years now. They've been online for roughly 20 years um, the Spahn family has been stewards of Dwight uh, Academy or Dwight schools for um, 100 years, more than 100 years, and the, the Dwight schools have been around for 150 or so years. So a huge legacy and incredible quality of school and, and uh, educational purpose and drive and, and also human development, really. they They put kids in the top colleges around the world all the time, but More than that, they're developing leadership skills and uh, community um, responsibility and accountability, all that stuff. So we intended to do brick-and-mortar academies these last few years, and we were probably on the 10-yard line um, of that. And then COVID struck, and it just kind of really... Through a wrench in things, so we we launched the online initiative just to give parents a better opportunity to give their kids a high-level education during this time, where all these schools are, even really fantastic schools, are really struggling to transition to online learning for these kids, and, um, you know, ICL had been doing it for 20 years, so they had a 19-and-a-half-year head start, so um, it's been it's been incredible to engage with these kids. We have 50 or so students in the Winter Sports Academy, and um, it's been... Yeah, it's, you know, it's, it's part of my nature. My grandparents started a tennis camp that was heavily into tennis instruction, but also character development and community and, um, you know, all the, all the good qualities that we all hope we could, you know, instill in our kids or instill in ourselves if we have the choice. Um, so it it's very natural to me and, uh, it's been, that's been one of the really cool things that's come out of this COVID debacle.
5: Okay. What specifically is different about this academy?
6: Uh, so it's an inverted blended curriculum, which means essentially each kid is obligated to somewhere between an hour and an hour and a half of live online classes per day. But during that time, this is the inverted part. The teacher actually just facilitates conversation between the kids. There is no teacher trying to tell you about your homework or what you did, or they just, they let you apply that within your class to how you felt about it, what it applies to in real life. They facilitate that conversation the rest of your day you you are held accountable to it and you can self-regulate and manage your time so but they're all online courses that are essentially self-instructed so they have videos for kids who are more visual learners they have audio and visual for reading and all the it's basically Demonstrations of what it is and applications in real life, and it's like you you can't go to your parent and say I don't understand what I'm supposed to do. It literally it spells it out. You have all these different drills. If kids struggle, puts them into a different group, and they they learn that way. So basically, it allows kids to do about twice as much work and feel like they're doing half as much. And then and the only obligation they have, which is an hour and a half all day you know is is spent conversing with their friends <laughs> with facilitation of a teacher and they come out of it with a you know a degree that'll get them into Harvard Yale Princeton you know Stanford any of the, the big schools so it's for me i mean it's one of those things i wish was around when i was there and my element of that is then i i do webinars weekly we have webinar wednesdays i talk to the kids give them you know, contextual stuff about what I did in my career, what I wished I'd had, how I deal with stress, how I dealt with competition, um, you know, everything. Uh, And it's really just kind of a very family-oriented kind of feel of just uh, being a resource for them. Plus, I give them training um, missions and and, and affiliate training programs and products that they could test out and and try that that I would have loved to have when I was younger that I think would have really helped. And Um, yeah, you know, my, my role in this, because we don't have a brick and mortar is much less where I'd be doing programming and kind of day-to-day stuff. In this case, I'm just trying to layer in as much help as I can to a really kick ass.
5: Let let me be clear. Is this only for ski racers or is it for the general public?
6: No. So ICL has been around for 20 years. So they've had students for 20 years doing this for dance, for acting, for who knows what, but, um, the Winter Sports actually Academy was this year. And, and we have kids who are snowboarders, Nordic, Alpine, um, snowshoe, who like to go mountaineering, who just wanted to not do the crappy public school program and are finding things to do with themselves in the winter. And that's partly what we talk about in our webinars. It's just how do you do fun stuff that you could explore and when you use your youth? You know, they all say youth's wasted on the young. I'm trying to make it wasted less.
5: Okay. You know, uh, Malcolm Gladwell popularized the theory that 10,000 hours are needed to become world-class. There's been a lot of documentation after that, but let's just assume you were presented with a very young person under the age of five. Do you think you could turn that person into a competitive World Cup ski racer, or do you believe there's an inherent natural talent?
6: Yeah, there's, there's inherent natural talent that'll make it a lot easier. I think you could turn them into a World Cup ski racer, depending on what country they're from. Uh, we happen to be gifted with a lousy, uh, World Cup culture. So being from America, you could turn almost any racer, get, give, taking them in at five. You could turn almost any racer into a World Cup or any person, young person into a World Cup racer. Would they win races? I doubt it. Um, It gets very nuanced and very difficult at the very, very top. We're talking about the best in the entire world. But you could definitely get them to race World Cup and place, say, you know, in the top 30 and in several races for virtually any human uh, that you found.
5: Okay, let's go back to education Needless to say, we have a large education problem in the United States. There's the war between religious, private, public. Is there enough money? Keeping people interested. Teaching to the test as opposed to learning to uh, to analyze. Two questions. Is your program scalable? And yes or no, do you feel there's a way to solve the educational problem personally in the United States?
6: Yeah, I'll start with the second first is, is, yeah, I think, I think ours is fully scalable. This is, I believe, the solution is that the difference is we don't, you need backend programming because this allows for this remarkable amount of freedom and flexibility of schedule. You need programming to fit around that, what the requirements are. And that programming has to be done well. School kind of cheats that system where they basically lock your kid up from eight in the morning till three in the afternoon. It's more of a glorify, glorified, glorified, babysitting system more than educational. I mean, the kids, if they're determined, can learn a lot and can get something out of it. But in my opinion, the the more critical elements as we all see as you get to the top of an industry is, is you know, perseverance, um, determination, self-reliance, creativity, things that aren't necessarily taught in books, they're discovered through uh, activities or through challenges. And um, I'm hoping that, yeah, I mean, ours is fully scalable. We could literally we have master class teachers, they're all recorded. So because the way they're designed, you don't need more. I mean, they are what they are. We will refine the curriculum all the time, but it's ultimately scalable to the entire U.S. and the cost is less than public school. So costs about 8,000 bucks right now for a public school kid, uh, costs us about 8,000 bucks to do this and the education is about four times better. So
5: how do you motivate someone who is hard headed and not motivated?
6: Yeah. I mean, everyone loves to do something. Um, You know, a lot of people don't know what they love to do yet, but they need exposure to lots of things to discover what that is, especially young people. It's usually activity, interaction with other kids. And then we have a really clever way of kind of parlaying that passion, that enthusiasm for something that you wouldn't have to kick them three times out the door to go get them to do. If it was their buddy out there playing basketball or going skiing or whatever, they're chomping at the bit to go do that. You parlay that into the understanding of how to sort of make things that suck, not, you know, fun, make things that suck, uh, exciting. And it's, it's, it takes a little creativity and a little time, but given the flexibility of this schedule, it makes it a ton easier because they're not, they're able to exhaust themselves doing things they love and then come in with a really positive attitude in a place really, um, sort of receptive to learning. and and get an incredible amount done.
5: Okay, prior to going to Maine to Carabasset Academy, which is a ski racing academy, what was your educational experience?
6: Yeah, Lafayette Regional Public School and then a bit of profile high school, uh, junior high and and freshman year. And it was, um, I would say, it was really easy for me. I, I wasn't, uh, you know, exceptional in terms of grades or anything. I was kind of a, a middle of the road student, but I never failed things. I just didn't really do a lot of work, didn't engage much, wasn't interested. Um, I liked science. I liked, you know, I came from a family of doctors. My dad was in medical school. His two older brothers are doctors and his grandpa, his father, my grandfather was a doctor, um, a prominent East Coast doctor. So I kind of had like a I was exposed to lots of medical books and lots of my dad. You know, still try. He speaks Latin. He has incredible vocabulary. So I had good homeschooling teachers prior to public school, which I started in third grade, and then public school was just kind of a waste of my time. I felt like so. Uh, I was excited and willing to take the risk of going off to boarding school, but it was definitely um, it was it was an ego blow because I was going from a big fish in a small pond to uh, a small fish in a much bigger pond, but and the demands were much higher, but uh, I knew that I was capable of dealing with it, and so I just kind of dove in.
5: Okay. You're a legendary independent thinker. Where did you get that? From your parents, from your family?
6: Yeah, I mean, it's it's the great mystery, is how much is, is uh, nature versus nurture. I don't, you know, I Everyone in my family is stubborn, right? We come from New Hampshire; it's a live free or die state. Like just our state motto should tell you something. But I also, my dad was in third year medical school. He was in his his uh, what do you call that? His um, internship. He in the, yeah, he's yeah. in the hospital actually diagnosing real patients and all that. And he walked from that. Threw it, threw it away. After coming from a family with a very prominent father who's a you know open heart surgeon and pioneering a lot of stuff in the East Coast, two older brothers who are doctors practicing, and he walked away from that to go speak at Woodstock and uh, you know and formed the political party, the Turtle Party, and you know a bunch of he was a, a a hippie, you know he he. So there's a defiant nature that comes from my dad's side, and my mom's side is probably only amplified. They're true New Hampshire, um, you know locals and. And, you know, screw anybody who tries to tell me what to do. And so I definitely had it from that side, genetically, and, and culturally, like it's, it's the nature of New Hampshire, you do what you want to do, and um, you stick to it, and you're accountable, and you don't blame other people. And so I had that also through my upbringing of my, you know, I'd leave at when I was four or five years old, I'd go outside at 830 in the morning, and I'd come back at four, you know, and I don't know how much time my mom was tracking me around, I'd, doubt she was, but um, it'd be comforting to think she was because I've got myself into some sketchy situations and was touch and go for a lot of times. But um, that kind of independence, you know, teaches you a lot about um, risk management and self-reliance and, and being accountable to your actions. And that, you know, I, so I was, it's, it's a mystery to me, but certainly I had it from every angle uh, uh, to, to develop into a very defiant, independent, self-reliant, Uh, self-motivated person.
5: Okay. Before you go to Kara Bassett, what kind of kid are you? Are you the loner, a member of the group, a leader, an outcast? What were you like?
6: Uh, I was probably a general. Um, I was... I didn't like the spotlight. So I didn't like being the guy. And there was always the guy. There was like some kid who was better looking or was funnier, had like, you know, all the jokes or whatever. But I was super dominant in athletics. So on the soccer field, baseball, I'd never played and I got to be the best kid on the team really quickly. I was really good at, I wasn't naturally that gifted. I was just, exposed to a ton of sports as a homeschooled kid with a tennis camp all summer and skiing all winter and snowboarding and sledding and standing up on those old snurf boards and climbing around in the rivers and running up and down the rivers and rock climbing with my uncle. So I had this massive, if you want to talk about Gladwell, I had this massive volume of hugely dynamic sports activity coordination mental discipline all these things at a really young age so it allowed me to adjust and tweak to any situation i was in and be successful so um you know, I had, I had good friends. I was not a bully. I was, I was a connector. I was friends with the older kids, uh, because they played sports at a higher level. And I liked that. I was friends with the skater guys. Uh, who smoked a bunch of weed cause I liked skateboarding and, you know, and they were fun. I was friends with guys who are 45 years old because they skied on cold days. They were the ski bums. And, and I played soccer with my uncles who were the generation before me. And so I really had like in New Hampshire, you don't have the option to Pick one friend, you, you, I, for me, I liked so many things. I was required to make friends with everybody, so I had a very diverse group of friends and I uh, was kind of jumping around and most of them couldn't understand how does he like come skateboard with us and then go rock climbing with his uncle or go play a soccer game that afternoon and that's just the way I, I lived. Okay, you
5: talk about homeschooling, but from K through the first and second year of high school, you were in traditional school, right?
6: No, I, I started public school in third grade in like, yeah, the middle of third grade. Oh,
5: okay. How'd you decide to go to Karabasset?
6: Um, The year before I'd gotten um, sort of violated in a way, uh, politically by a coach in Franconia. I'd, he'd he'd called up a race after and said that I'd admitted to him that I'd hooked a tip and I should be disqualified. I had never done that. He was upset with me because we had a little bit of a throwdown in front of some of the other kids and a couple parents where he was – saying that I couldn't train because I was too bad and I should do the drills that he wanted me to do. And I said, I don't care about your drills. I just want to run some gates because I have JO qualifiers tomorrow. And so he was pretty butthurt about that argument and, and felt like he wanted to get me back. He called this race, had a race thrown out. And, uh, I didn't make the junior Olympics that year as a 12 year old. And, uh, my town and, and kind of everybody ran them out of town on a, on a you know, tarred and feathered, but it didn't change the fact that it was out of the JOs that previous year. And they said, look, you know, if you're serious about this, we'll figure out a way um, to get you into Carabassett. My mom was good, was best friends when she was 15 with the headmaster's uh, wife. So that was kind of an in. And then I had to, you know, I lived with a day student 20, 20 miles away from school off in the woods with no no access by car. Um, that was my first year at CVA and I only went for the winter term. So I went in November and came back in, I guess, March. Um, and, uh, and I had to work all summer to pay it off. So I paid, paid my own way with help from some of the locals in my town, but it was, uh, yeah, it was, it was scratching at that point. Uh,
5: what did your father do for a living, having dropped out of medical school?
6: <laughs> Professional hippie. He, uh, he and my mom were together till I was six and then they separated and he went down to Tennessee primarily because he was unhappy and I think had, 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 uh, had, had several, you know, early seventies, mid seventies affairs, but also um, he had missed out on, he he invented futz bars, which were these date fig maple syrup, a bunch of different nuts in this tiny little wrapper bar. And this is in, 1979 probably and uh that's pre power bar pre everything else he if you went back through his his life from just before i was born he he invented six or seven things that turned into billion dollar industries and he was way ahead of the curve but his lack of ability to see things through or or do the steps that maybe weren't as fun for him uh prevented him from ever monetizing anything so then he when he separated from my mom which i think as i said was not to go make money but that was part of the excuse he went down to tennessee and was a tree druid so he would climb up in huge trees along these big mansion uh driveways and outside of nashville and he'd he'd clean up the trees make sure branches weren't going to break people's houses and cars and um he did that for i think five or six years down there and then uh Ended up moving back up. Now he's he works for he was a homeless outreach worker for 15 years in, in New England. Um, he still maintains his very hippie, <laughs> hippie approach. Uh, he's never really made made any money.
5: Okay, so you're at Carabasset, you get out from under the bad coach, you're there. A, do you fit in? B, is the coaching beneficial?
6: Um, I would say fit in fine because I love sports and I was a hard worker. Um, coaching was still problematic because I was bad. Uh, you know, that the end of that first year, um, I didn't really have any good results to speak of. Uh, certain coaches could see that I had a lot of raw speed and I was naturally very athletic. Um, but they, they sat me down after the first year. And again, keep in mind, I was, I was getting up at 4.30 in the morning, doing chores, getting on a snowmobile, snowmobiling six miles along these crazy main trails into Kingfield, hitching a ride with some worker or employee up to Carabasic, getting there in time for morning meeting, going through classes, going to the hill, training classes, come back down, get in a car, 18 miles back down to Kingfield, back on a snowmobile, six miles through the woods, chores, homework, dinner, bed, and doing that over and over again. And I was... With another student who was two years older than me, but then he would go off on fist racing trips for a week and a half, two weeks. So I'd be on my own. So I was, you know, fourteen years old, uh, driving my own snowmobile through six miles through the woods like rickety ass. And at the end of that year, I had it they had like an intervention. They sat down, the dean of students, uh, um, all the coaches, and they said, "Look, you're lazy, and you you suck at skiing. You're never going to be any good. Um, we don't like your attitude. You don't you don't really you know." show a lot of like initiative enthusiasm. If you switch to snowboarding, we'll give you a full ride back to school. You'll live in the dorm next year. Won't pay anything. All set. Um, I was good at snowboarding. I'd grown up snowboarding and and we had an all school snowboard race was what inspired this as I was like second or third in one of the runs in the, we had the best snowboarders in the country at that time. And they went around the circle and basically all just, just (laughs) pop my balloon, like talk about pee in the cereal. It was, it was brutal. And I, I was happy to not to have broken down and cried right there. Cause it was pretty brutal. Cause I, I was doing double what any other student in the, in the school was doing minus the dude who was my, my sort of, I guess housemate, but he was even doing less than I was. And he's a couple years older. So, um, but I, I reflected on that and thought about it a bunch and then told him to pound sand and that if they needed to charge me more to come back to school, I'd, I'd figure out a way to pay it. And I wanted to be a ski racer and snowboarding was not what I wanted to do. So, um, yeah, I fit in, but I was still definitely (laughs) defiant and definitely was not fitting into the system the way they wanted to. And I said, look, you guys, I am I suck now. I'll give you that. You're not wrong, but I'm going to be better when I'm 15 and I'm going to be better when I'm 18. And when I'm 20, you'll start to see how good I can be. That's what it's going to take. And I apologize if that's too long a timeline for you guys, but, you know, I've known this for 10 years at that point, since I was six or seven, when I talked to my grandmother about it a bunch. And I said, look, it's not important how good I am when I'm 15. There's not a lot of prize money there. And if you win races, you know, it's, it's a different deal. I need to be good when I'm, when I'm old enough to be successful on the world stage.
5: Okay. Ultimately you were, but you know, you have a unique style and certainly I grew up in the era. you know, was your, in the era, first your skis were together, then racers were apart and they had changes in equipment. Was the coaching ever helpful or really you were coaching yourself and you uh, had the benefit of them setting the gates up and logistics?
6: I would say both. I mean, I think the coaching was very rarely helpful in the immediate term. I think the coaching was really helpful long term, over, over a one or two year span where I listened to everything and I retain information really well. And mostly what I was doing, the way that I developed and the way that I learned things was by watching other people. I would watch somebody who I liked a certain thing. They could be worse than I did than I was at that time. But I liked specifically the way they moved into a turn. And I had a very good understanding of, of sort of the biomechanics of skiing and how to generate speed. And that's one thing that I wasn't willing to give up. And that was always a pushback from the coaches. They wanted me to do manually adjust certain things. And I said, I can't do those things because it'll cost me these things that I need to keep alive. Because if I, if I kill them, I'm not sure I'll ever res- resurrect them later. And those are the most important things. So um, the coaching, I would say in hindsight... Was a lot of it was um, was emotional uh, arousal control and races patience. Uh, I learned a lot of that stuff from those coaches, and I had some amazing coaches up at CVA. From a technical standpoint, I don't think I learned that much.
5: Okay, speaking of technical standpoints, you had a breakthrough. You were in the U.S. Nationals, I believe it was, and you used the K 24 which was a shaped recreational ski. How did you decide to do that?
6: I'd been a snowboarder. Um, as I said, they tried to get me to switch to snowboarding in ninth grade. This is all the way into my senior year. And I'd been working on George Tormey, who was a K2 rep uh, on the East Coast who'd raced with my uncle. So I had, you know, kind of a little extra credibility with him. And he's a great dude. And uh, I'd, I'd cut a snowboard, an alpine snowboard in half and mounted, mounted ski bindings on it and flipped the edges so that I had one side cut edge and then one raw bandsawed, uh, edge. If you touch that to the snow, you crashed immediately. And I was arcing turns and I had George watch me and I said, George, we need to build a shape ski. I was always trying to innovate. It was during that time where we had derby flex and higher lifters. And the one thing that was missing was more side cut. And you could clearly see that snowboarders could arc turns all day. That is, it would have been happening for years. And we just hadn't done it in skiing. So George said, Hey, we tried that in the 70s. It didn't work. I was like, Well, you tried it wrong. Let's try it again. And Um, I'd worked on him for two years. Finally, he got them to build a semblance of, of what I'd asked for. And I did everything from exact construction. I wanted a capped construction to give torsional stiffness. And I was in mechanical drawing and all that stuff. So I was doing, I had a, I had a drawing board and I was drawing everything out. And, um, finally he built them and uh the the day that i got them it changed really changed the sport um alan had been developing uh their shape ski during that same phase but no one had skied on it yet in races no one had really experimented with it so the k24 was the first ski that i'd really developed um and forced through and i raced on it in the junior olympics and i won the super g by 2 point you know 7 seconds and i i was more than five seconds ahead before I crash, or went on my hip a couple of times on the bottom and lost a ton of time, but still ended up winning by you know, almost three seconds and then won the giant slalom by over two seconds as well with several crashes in the giant slalom as well. So that really shocked people and opened the eyes and put the, you know, the magnifying glass on K2 and then the next year, everybody, I didn't use those skis in the nationals. That's, that's a, a common mistake. I was only in the nationals for giant slalom and, and, uh, slalom and I crashed in the GS and blew out. And then the slalom, I used the traditional ski. My, my slalom ski was the same length as my K2-4. So I was using the same length in slalom and GS and, uh, and I m- pulled off a, a really magical, um, run from way back in the pack and finish third to objectively qualify for the team. If I hadn't objectively qualified, there was zero chance they were taking me on the team.
5: Okay. So you are partially responsible for the development of the K four K two, uh, four.
6: Yeah. Yeah. And I think it, it, I mean, not, to. Split hairs, but I I wouldn't even say partially. I would say, uh, you know, 97%. They fought me on it for two years. I'd been pushing it. I gave George the snowboard. I showed him the side cut. I showed him everything. I cut the snowboard even thinner and that screwed it up. And I said, this is what you did in the 70s. When you tried shape skis, you didn't have the torsion. If I left the snowboard as half, I had a raw edge of wood that I'd bandsawed, and then a side cut finished edge. I could arc turns on that. If I cut off another half of that to make it the width of a normal race ski, it skied like shit because it was too torsionally weak. It would twist too much. And that's what they'd messed up. So I said, you know, I I really worked hard on them for two years and I will say of all my qualities, my persistence and stubbornness uh, are, are two of my elite level qualities, and I just wore them down, honestly. And he finally went in there and said, look, dude, we got to build these skis. And he didn't even really tell him. He said, it's a rec ski. It'll be awesome. We'll try it. They built them, and they sold out across the country in a week and a half.
5: Okay, let's talk about equipment. You were with numerous companies. You started with Fisher. You went to Rosignol. You were at Atomic. You went to Head. Is there really any difference? Let's just start with the skis themselves opposed to the boots. Is there really any difference or you can get in and make the ski work for you?
6: No, there's a massive difference. Massive difference. I mean, the engineers are are different philosophically, the equipment, the layup process, side cuts, there there's a huge difference. Also they became systems pretty early where a boot binding plate ski all work together. And if you didn't have that right, you could really screw it up. But keep in mind, before that, I skied on um, K2, Olin, Rosignal, previous to World Cup racing. This is through my sort of high school years. Um, I skied on uh Nisel. I skied on Atomic twice, really two different versions there. Um and I gravitated towards K two because of the relationship with George and I was able to get better skis. And then um but yeah, the the difference from K two to Fisher was was night and day. I mean it was a huge I I would have had a really, really, really hard time trying to win a World Cup race had I stayed on K two my entire career. Um regardless of my own engineering prowess or anything else. Fisher, I had the ability to win races that year um then rossignol i had the ability to win races and start moving into speed effectively so into super g downhill and then um from from rossi is when i kind of i wouldn't say sold out but switched to atomic where i knew i was due i was physically finally mature and strong enough and um i knew i could be a world beater so i switched to atomic and that's when i won you know the wire to wire overall world cup and all all the events in 17 days you know um and then and then after that was more of, I wanted to develop skis and, and fell in with Head and stayed with them for, for eight years.
0: Welcome to 500 Greatest Songs, a podcast based on Rolling Stone's hugely popular, influential, and sometimes controversial list. I'm Brittany Spanos.
1: And I'm Rob Sheffield. We're here to shed light on the greatest songs ever made and discover what makes them so great.
0: Every week, we'll pick a new song from the list and talk about their placement on the revamped 2021 list.
1: We'll also have guests join us, ranging from the artists themselves to the producers or simply other writers like ourselves who voted on them.
0: From classics like Fleetwood Mac's Dreams to the Ronettes' Be My Baby and modern-day classics like The Killer's Mr. Brightside and Britney Spears' Baby One More Time.
1: There's so many fascinating stories that have been forgotten, like Midnight Train to Georgia, starting with a phone call to Farrah Fawcett or how the yeah, yeah, yeahs inspired Kelly Clarkson's banger Since You've Been Gone and Beyoncé's Hold Up. Listen to Rolling Stone's 500 Greatest Songs on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.
2: Every week on Talk Easy with Sam Fragoso, I invite an artist, writer, or politician to come to the table and speak from the heart in ways I imagine you haven't heard from them before. where people actually start to sound like people. In recent weeks, I sat with Dan Levy, Ava DuVernay, Benny Safty, and the editor of The New Yorker, David Remnick. You can listen to Talk Easy with Sam Fragoso on the iHeart Radio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I hope to see you there.
3: Hi there, I'm Bob Pittman, chairman and CEO of iHeartMedia. Welcome to Math & Magic, stories from the frontiers of marketing. And the magic, the creative spark more than ever. Listen to Math and Magic on our very own iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.
5: Okay, let's start with Fisher. Okay, I agree totally. Ski ski totally different. I happen to like the French skis. I like something a little bit more alive, but at World Cup level, you're not skiing on retail skis. So when we talk about Fisher, Would you tell them how to make the skis, or they just had a bunch of skis, you tested them, and you skied what you liked?
6: No, by that point, I had a very clear idea. That was a big part of it. K2 was actually pulling away from World Cup, and uh, it was almost mandatory that I switched. And when I went to several companies, which I was in demand, I could have switched to several, um, I told Fisher, will you build me this exact slalom ski? This is the ski. It needs to be this, this fiberglass, this top sheet, this side cut this wood core, this many laminates across, will you build me this? And they said, yeah, it's not going to work,
0: but we'll build it for
6: you. (laughs) And I said, okay, build it for me. And, um, that was a, that was a deal maker because the other companies were at that time, this is, you know, in 2000, um, I was, I didn't have the credibility and the, The industry wasn't prepared to take that type of input from the athletes. They would take, as you said, they'd give them five pairs, which do you like best? And then they would go back and try to figure out which materials to change to make the new ones better and all that. So um, that was the very beginning of that. And I wanted a company that was going to do exactly what I said. And Fisher offered to do that. Um, and so I went and actually that was the beginning of a massive, uh, revolution in the sport where within two years, every company had their athletes in the actual ski room, showing them fiberglass, showing them metals and, and trying to figure out because there was a huge gap between what you felt on the hill and what the engineer decided was going to impact that feeling. There there's, there's 30 ways to skin a cat in that case. And they just had too big a gap. So we closed that gap right up.
5: Okay. Slowly. How and why did you decide to switch to Rossi?
6: I decided because of one particular GS ski. So I'd won a couple slums on Fisher, I'd won a couple GSs. Um, the ski was uh, already going down the path that we ended up on then, uh, now, which is a very tip tail ski. So you could feel the very, very tip of the ski engage in the snow. And if it hit a bump, it would deflect and you'd lose radius. So it would flap down and it would just, and I skied on uh, Nordica, I skied on Rossi, I skied on Star, and the Rossignol skis that they had for me at that time was a complete anomaly. And the, the irony is this has happened to me several times. They built five pairs. So it was a prototype run of a ski and they said, have Bodhi test these skis. Um, they couldn't get the, I don't know if you remember razi at that time, they had a VAS plate. It was this little metal plate that stuck on the top of the ski. They couldn't get that plate to stick to the aluminum, which is right under the top sheet. And then the, the felt, it was metal on metal and it would just fly off. And, and so they actually on that particular batch, they said, well, shit, we'll just cut a hole in the aluminum. We'll, we'll stick that thing through that hole to the aluminum. We'll glue it onto the wood below and it worked perfect so stayed on i got all five of those pairs of skis i broke one immediately actually in the testing program but because they cut that hole in the top layer of aluminum they created a bit of a hinge point in the ski right there and you had this unbelievable grip point just in front of the binding so if you slid into a turn in chundry, you know icy conditions, you had this grip point right in front of the binding that you could always rely on, and the tip wasn't even the part grabbing. You you pulled a radius that was disproportionate to your side cut because the tip was actually not doing it. It was just folding in this tiny little space right in front of the binding, and you just it was like a hockey skate. And I, I didn't know at the time that that was the only five pairs in existence. Three uh, M, who was their glue provider at that time gave them glue that worked. They built every ski from that point forward without cutting a hole in the aluminum because now the metal stuck to the metal and stayed on there perfectly. And we spent two years trying to figure out why my race skis were the best skis ever built and every other pair they built was garbage compared to it. So um, that one ski was the reason. It was everything I'd been looking for and I went and won the GS title against one of the strongest giant slalom fields that, that's been around. Um, you know, Herman, Benny Reich, uh, Sean Felder. Pollender, uh, DDA Kush um, Nyberg, Eberharder. It was like the, the powerhouse of GS skiing at that time for me to win was something that I wouldn't have been able to do with any other ski company at that time.
5: Okay. Now from a retail level, Rossi's and atomic ski radically differently. Did you mm-hmm. experience it? You say you went for the money, but that's a big switch.
6: No, I didn't. I mean, I, you mean when I switched to atomic? Yeah. No, that was one of the great regrets in my career looking back was that I went to Atomic. They paid me half as much as Rossi did and a quarter as much as Nordica was offering me at that time, a quarter. I would have had the biggest contract there's ever been in ski racing by going to Nordica. But um, and Nordica, had Ahmad at that time. He was just kind of phasing out. I would have had an amazing quiver of skis. They were good in four events. I could have stayed on Nordica boots. Um, There was a lot there that that really, in hindsight, I, I would love to know what would have happened had I made that switch. But the Atomics I was on at that time were the Beta. So that was that that little arched top. They had two aluminum tubes in there. That Beta did the same thing that Rossi cutting the hole in their ski did, but a different way. It created a torsional imbalance between those two tubes that were longitudinally very stiff. The ski was, was really stiff. But torsionally, all the way up until the binding, the ski actually rotated this way because they were two separate tubes that moved independently. And... That, that was a remarkable GSG. Um, it was the second best GSK I'd ever been on. And I wanted atomic because of super G downhill. I was willing to suck in slalom and, and figure it out, but I wanted super G downhill. Cause what I was on, on Rossignol was not, it allowed me to move into downhill super G, but I wasn't competitive. And, you know, again, I can't second guess myself in that. I got on atomic, built my first pair of boots, was down in Chian in Chile south of Santiago and I didn't lose a run of Super gear downhill skiing against the entire French team Darren my own team who was who was strong at that time um, for for a month and a half and I didn't I didn't lose a single run I mean so it was kind of a I wish I knew what would happen if I'd made a different choice but it was a very strong switch
5: okay when you were there, Certainly the Austria an Austrian company and Herman Meyer, et cetera. You're kind of further down the totem pole. Does that affect what equipment you get and what attention you get?
6: Yeah. Well, that was a big part of the, the 06 Olympic debacle. Um, I built a super G ski. There was also a downhill ski, um, in, in say September. And, uh, and they politically, there was shenanigans there. They, the Austrian team, which basically controls the Austrian factory, uh, took those skis, tested them. They couldn't figure them out, which is I wasn't trying to do intentionally, but there was a very specific way those skis needed to be tuned and mounted to work right. And they couldn't figure it out. So they kept trying them, kept trying them. No guy could make them work. They were super fast on the flats, but they couldn't figure out how to make them turn. And they held those all the way until two days before the Olympic downhill. Um, And then they gave them to me and Darren because they knew that I wouldn't be able to resist trying them. And they felt like that would be a distraction. Darren and I were the two strongest downhillers really in the world at that point. And, uh, and they wanted every advantage they could get. And that political, uh, shenanigans upset both of us. We ended up racing on the same pair of skis, Darren and I, I skied first. I was starting before him. They ran the skis up the chairlift. He, they refinished them at the start and he ran the same skis. And unfortunately, lack of experience on them and all that, we, we didn't have success in the downhill. I won the combined downhill against the same field a day later by a second. Um, so, I mean, you know. They were successful in, in thwarting our, our stuff, but uh, that was a piece of why I was so petulant and upset during that 06 Olympics, because my team didn't go to bat for me, and I was just, uh, yeah, I was taking advantage of it away.
5: How long does a pair of race skis last?
6: Depends on how good you are at keeping them safe. I My my razi's I skied on the same pair of race skis the entire first year, and say six of eight races the second year. Okay. On one pair. And you would only. but I wouldn't, but I would I wouldn't train on them. I, I wouldn't bring them out for anything. I wouldn't even bring my training skis out to train on. I would train on other skis that I specifically tuned in a way to make them more similar to my race skis, even though I was nowhere near time-wise. And we had a little funny thing at Solden where we'd ski, we'd do the Austrian time trial before the first world cup of the year was, was sold in the U S had a sort of relationship with Austria. We trained with them and We'd be training on it right before the time trial, and my coaches would be like, dude, you're sucking. Like, what's going on? I'd be like, don't worry about it. I'll be fine. And I'd go out and bring out just my training skis for the time trial, and I won that time trial. I won both runs three years in a row against all the Austrians and all of our team. And then I would put those skis away, and I'd go back to getting beat by guys on my own team. And I'd pull out the race skis for race day, and and win races on them. But it just you have to know how to manage them, and you got to be really careful with what you do. Even hitting hard ice, you can't you can't jam certain ways on it. You certainly can't hit rocks or anything else.
5: Okay, in the switch to Head, you were really the first big name to go to Head.
6: Yeah, Johan Eliash, uh, who's the owner of Head, um, you know, and I got to know each other a bit, and he said, look you know, my goal is to be the number one ski company in the world. And I was like, all right, let's do it. I was like, if I'm going to join you, you got to, I said, I don't want to get a bunch of pushback. I said, you know, me, uh, if you're bringing me on for this, I can, I can get you there. You will be the number one ski company. When I tell you to buy this athlete, you don't bicker about it. You just buy that athlete. When I tell you, but build new skis in this category, build new skis. Like it's going to cost you some money, but we'll get to number one. He said, "I'm not concerned about the money. Let's do it." And um, that was a exciting, fun, uh, new project for me because I was building skis not just for myself. I was building skis for the women's team. I was building skis for men's who skied very differently than I did. Who in some cases were much more talented in certain areas than I was. And that was that was fun. I, I enjoyed that a lot.
5: Okay, but you're essentially going, it's a blank slate. Did you really just tell them how to build the skis?
6: They had, they had remarkable engineers. Um, you know, Head was maybe the strongest in the entire world in terms of their raw engineering power. What they didn't have was what all these other ski companies had really capitalized in the six years previous to that was really good communication with top level athletes who are racing world cup all the time. They just didn't have the athletes and they didn't have a rapport or vocabulary to communicate even with the athletes they did have, which were lower level. Um, so yeah, when I came on, I basically communicated with those engineers. It was, a it was a great, it was a great time because they understood everything I said. Nothing was shocking. They'd already done a bunch of great things over the past years that I actually reinvigorated and said, no, no, I think you were really close. This was an awesome idea. You guys are way ahead of the curve. You just have to tweak these things because here's how this feels on the snow and here's what you're missing. And they could do it, you know, overnight. And then I'd, I'd move things. So we moved forward very quickly within that first year when I switched. Um, that 06, 07 season, we had the best speed skis on the planet that first year because we reinvigorated the traction system with that cut, they put this cut through the top layer and top layer of aluminum and they bridge that with a piece of aluminum underneath it. But it does that same thing. It creates an inflection point in the ski and they just hadn't quite got that right. And we got that right. And the ski was unbelievable.
5: What about the famous two edge skis? Two edge yeah. I mean, like the one was on top of another. Did those work or is that, you know, just got a lot of press?
6: I, I think it just got a lot of press. I mean, it was, you know, there's metal slow period, like the thinner edges, the better. Um, but there's certain elements of that that I think are going to be relevant in the future um, particularly for big mountain, really steep stuff, having an edge that skis normally, but having a a secondary edge that comes out of your sidewall, that's essentially for 50, 60 degree pitches that what you have a grip point, that's really only right underneath your foot, where you don't feel the tip or the tail. You're, you're just like a hockey skate right under your foot. And that can be, um, really, really important for safety when you're up on a you know, face that you're suspended over a 800 foot cliff and you, you know, your tip hits a wind drift and you're backwards. And, um, I think there's a lot to that. I think there's been some unbelievably smart, creative engineers in the sport over the last four or five decades. And unfortunately it's, it's a system. So it's kind of like a house of cards. If you did everything right, but one thing was wrong, the whole thing didn't work. So in this case, a lot of it is revisiting really old, clever ideas and figuring out how to, um, you know, tweak them a little bit and see if there's if there's value there
5: okay what about boots what was your evolution in boots you certainly switched a number of times
6: yeah and and boots were always a frustration point for me i I wish that um i'd had a wealthy benefactor who would allow me to build my own boots um because I, i felt like it's such a crazy concept that we build this more or less chunk of plastic that just bends and flexes and somehow it works. And it does work. I won't deny that, but it doesn't work as well as it should. Um, to me, boots are much more of an engineering piece than any other part of the system, right? Is You should have a boot that's controlled by either gas shocks, oil shocks, elastomers, something. There shouldn't be just plastic the bending and bubbling where you know in the whole front of the boot where all the flexing and movement happens is constantly being opened and closed to get your foot in and out of it and like if you buckle the bu- the buckles slightly tighter you get a totally different performance you know curve than you would with them looser it's just to me that was insane so when I was on Nordica I had some breakthroughs in terms of basic understanding of what different things could do to a boot and that was my favorite boot. Um, when I was on atomic, I, I did the same things and was able to create a really good four event boot. I ski the exact same boot in slalom GS super G downhill and one, uh, you know, seven races in, in 14 days or 17 days or something. So, um, and on the same boot and that, that was the sort of extent beyond that. I think boots were garbage. So right now I ski on a, a full tilt, which is a old Reikley, um, from the 80s, right? It literally is the mold from the 80s. And um, that that boot was the best boot on the world then. And the only knock against it was it didn't turn skis that well. And that was because the skis had no side cut and didn't turn very well. So now I think that's by far the best boot um, on the planet. So that's what I use. But I am trying to push somebody to evolve the boot process because I think there's a huge, huge capability for improvement there.
5: Okay. Specifically, what makes the full tilt boot better?
6: Uh, Flex is straightforward. So you you flex linear um, versus flexing out. So if you were to bolt your typical ski boots to the ground with a base down to flex forward, your knees have to travel out, usually 10 degrees, 13 degrees, whatever, but they travel out. So if you're forward on the front of your boot, you're actually increasing the edge angle. And then when you with your knee moving in a linear motion straight backwards, the edge decreases in angle. Even though you're not decreasing your edge angle with your knees, the ski is decreasing because you're coming back to a neutral spot. That to me is a terrible design. It worked well when the skis had no side cut because as you drove forward, you could the, the ski would tip way up and it would cause the front to kind of turn when no side cut. But now it just creates an overly aggressive ski that causes all kinds of problems and knee injuries and stuff. So that's one piece of it. The other interchangeability, I can switch my tongue out and go from a six flex tongue to a 10 to a 14. And I have this urethane tongue that they made me. Um, they would be like the equivalent of like, I don't know like a 16 or 17 or 18, but, um, you can change the back, the cuff, the same thing. You can just pop it off and put on a different one and, um, dramatically change the characteristics of the boot. So, and you slide it on like a slipper and no snow gets in there. It's just, it's just better.
5: Okay. You famously tweaked your boots on the Doberman. You were added forward lean. So when it comes to forward lean and ramp angle, what were your thoughts?
6: It's all, it's a system. It only matters about the system. If you're skiing a a ski that you can trust the front half of the ski and you needed certain things, you could ramp up. But generally, I was going the other way. If I ramped up in the boot, I would de-ramp on the ski. So I would put lifters under the toe piece of the binding. So even though I had more ankle flexion in the boot, that was just to get the boot to line up correctly so that I could could drive down with my knee instead of tipping forward with my knee. So I always like to drive down into the ski with my knee versus... So I needed ankle flexion. If the boot was too open, too upright, the angle was too open, then you you were stuck. So I would always get that to a place I liked. And then I would bring the toe up to get me balanced on the ski. Definitely one of the common mistakes is too much ramp angle and too much forward lean and too much, uh, Delta between the front and back of the bindings. Typical bindings are, you know, five millimeters lower in the front than the back. Um, and that's, when you compound that by ramp angle inside the boot, where the front is, you know, sometimes 13, 14 millimeters difference between the height of the heel and the height of the toe, it's just this whole big ramp. And it makes it impossible for people to ski forward because they're so tipped forward that if they actually push forward, they would just fall over the front of their skis. So um, I did everything, but uh, I would say I ended up in a really good place with fairly neutral to upright boots Um, with good ankle flexion, and I was moving my foot around inside the boot quite a bit, getting the right ankle position versus where the boot actually liked to bend. Um, But basically a flat ramp angle on the ski.
5: Okay, that's been a big evolution. If you go to Lang, which has been around since the 50s, hit its heyday in the 60s, with the old skis, the Stratos, the Dita Meek VR-17s, they had a lot of ramp angle. Now they're really flat. Okay. So on some level, you're saying that's followed you. How does that affect how you ski on shape skis? In the old days, when it was so much harder to have a car of turn, you had to get the weight forward. Do you feel that that's less of an issue and it's more about being centered now?
6: Yeah, of course. I mean, if you're going dead straight in a straight line on a shape ski, and you don't have to push forward at all, you just tip over. That's tip initiates so quickly with that side cut and pulls in so quickly that automatically your inertia is going forward and now the ski's trying to turn that way. You are forward. You can't avoid being forward. It's actually hard to not be forward on a really dramatic side cut ski. Um, you're exactly right. They were designed around and so is the Nordica Grand Prix it was designed around skis with no side cut that were much longer where you really had to you had to twist and snap that front to get it to do anything. And now you don't yeah, the ski does all that for you, uh, automatically. And so a more upright boot with much less ramp angle makes you more efficient. You're, you're skeletally, you're more lined up. You're able to support more force and absorb more. Um, the challenge is with knee flexion, you don't have a lot of suspension in the ski system, right? From the bottom of the ski to the, all the way up, your shin can't move that much. So a lot of your suspension is from your knee to your hip and that's a really slow moving, long travel suspender. Um, so I tend to still like some ankle flexion for absorption purposes, but again, that's where the full tilt is so much better than other boots is that you, you can't fold it over the top. You know, I I broke my ankle inside my boot twice because I would hyper flex the boot and it would just pull my ankle apart and snap off the bottom of my, my uh, tibia. And it's, you can't do that in a full tilt because the instep is actually, if your ankle joint is here, a normal boot, the instep might be there in the full tilt. The instep is like two inches away from the front of your, so you, it doesn't cause any lever. You can't be pulled up out of the boot. You'll just crunch against it, and it actually drives your heel down and back no matter what you're doing. So it's, you know, for me, it's safer too.
5: Okay. Now, you skied at the literally top level, the elite level, and before you made it to the top, were you ever intimidated by the competition? Now, you had a long history of competition. I was not a good ski racer, but I used to ski with the World Cup freestyle people and the moguls all the time. Could ski better than them but once you're in competition it's like this guy scott Brooks. Bank he got better in competition okay so what was it like for you competing
6: yeah it was there was um there was certainly times where i was intimidated i mean there's a picture of herman uh it didn't happen early so much because i was always like look i'm gonna get better i'm gonna get better i'm gonna get better there was a time where herman was I think it was 98 or 99, um, he was on his full doping program, I mean, the guy's legs were just like, he's on a table in a lab with, with uh, the electro stim hooked up to his legs, and he's doing a full, both quads, full flexion, like rocked out, and there's like striations, he had muscles that I don't even know are on a normal human, that were like stacked on top of normal muscles, and and I was just like, you, I mean, it put me in the tank for like eight months because I was like, this is garbage. Like, I, there's no way, no matter, he's better technically than I am. He's on better skis. He's doping. He's, you know, better technically by a mile. Um, like, what am I talking about here? And and uh, eventually I overcame it. But um, I was one of the people who, because of my ability to take risk. And, and that was my strength was my ability to sort of motivate myself to take risk and be willing to do that in competition and deal with the fact that I was going to fail a lot of the time. That was my biggest skill set. And I recognized really quickly that even Herman didn't have that. I had them in that category. That was my that was my trump card. And honestly, I set up specific split times, which, you know, not not that we have to touch on it, but Skio is my app that I've created now that measures everything, measures exact speed, distance travel, G forces, all that stuff. During that time of like late high school into early World Cup, I was setting up split times because I needed to know how fast am I I needed some positive reinforcement. I couldn't finish races. I was like, I only care about how fast I am for these two gates. I need to know that I have like elite level speed for two gates. And I would see what I could do for two gates in the middle of a course. I would set up a specific split time for six seconds. And and that really helped my confidence because I was like, look, I, I haven't figured it out yet. And I certainly can't do it for 54 gates in a row. But for those two gates, I am Way faster than anybody in our country and possibly the world, and that was sort of the thing that got me over the deficiencies that I had in every other category because I was kind of a middle of the road type dude in fitness, technique, uh, endurance, um, you know, uh, equipment, you know, tactics, understanding of hills, snow conditions, inspection, everything. But in a couple categories, I was elite level, and I had to figure out how to utilize those and capitalize on them
5: okay to what degree was doping a factor to what degree is it still a factor and you famously said you didn't care if anybody doped you could still beat them
6: yeah i don't know that that's exactly what i said but i think you covered the gist of it um i you know it was it's always been a thing i think it's been a thing in virtually every sport since the beginning of time i mean i think guys used to chew coca leaves back in the old days when they had a little foot race over in greece but um i think that there's there's a misperception that doping does it for you, that you dope and then you're just better. And that's just not the case. The guys, the, the big, the big advantage of doping is you can train more and you recover more quickly. So half the doping stuff isn't even enhancement things. It's recovery things. So you, if you can train, I mean, the Costlich family, I love them. They're great people. They both had organ failure later on in their careers because they were on these programs that allowed them to ski twice or three times as much as every other world cup racer. And They got really, really good because they trained three times as much as any other World Cup racer, but it also caused organ failure. And for me, I was kind of of the mindset of like, look, this isn't Tour de France. Tour de France, if you're not doping, I don't think you have a realistic chance of winning. You know, know, football, if you're not doping, you know, American football, you're likely to get beat up throughout the season and not recover as well. And you're going to get thrown around by guys who are. That's... But in ski racing, because it's a minute or because it's two minutes, I felt like if I was willing to take the risk and I had to adjust my criteria, I would love to win eighty percent of the races I was in. But that just wasn't in the cards for me. I was like, I can get through a minute, <laughs> and it's more going to be about my intensity and my risk taking and how I can manage that. I'm I'm capable of beating even guys who are. I'd always dealt with it. Guys who were much fitter than I was, much more technically sound, better equipment, and I'd beat them before, so I didn't really see that as a massive uh, problem. I just felt like I wasn't going to win the overall very many times because guys who were on that recovery program were just more fresh all the time, and I was not.
0: Welcome to 500 Greatest Songs, a podcast based on Rolling Stone's hugely popular, influential, and sometimes controversial list.
1: There's so many fascinating stories that have been forgotten, like Midnight Train to Georgia, starting with a phone call to Farrah Fawcett, or how the Yeah, Yeah, Yeahs inspired Kelly Clarkson's banger Since You've Been Gone and Beyoncé's Hold Up. Listen to Rolling Stone's 500 Greatest Songs on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.
2: Every week on Talk Easy with Sam Fragoso, I invite an artist, writer, or politician to come to the table and an abundance of research. Conversations where people actually start to sound like people. In recent weeks, I sat with Dan Levy, Ava DuVernay, Benny Safty, and the editor of The New Yorker, David Remnick. You can listen to Talk Easy with Sam Fragoso on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I hope to see you there.
3: Hi there, I'm Bob Pittman, chairman and CEO of iHeartMedia. In these exciting times, we're looking to the math, the strategy and analytics, and the magic, the creative spark, more than ever. Listen to math and magic on our very own iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.
5: Okay, so you retired. Then you wanted to come out of retirement using the full tilt boots, using bomber skis, headset no ultimately you had a relationship with bomber now you have a relationship with crosson take us through that evolution
6: yeah when i quit i was i was well well good and done um, but i still had things a bit like rocky and rocky 6 right there was i wouldn't say there was skeletons in the closet but there was things in the basement that i wanted to do and you can't do them on your local ski hill you you needed a world cup forum with the conditions and the the level of safety to actually put them to the test and it was more Honestly, it wasn't about winning races. It wasn't about proving anything. It was simply about understanding what was possible with equipment and things like that. And it was the first time I'd had the the handcuffs off in eight years um, out from underhead. And I retired with the intent of not doing that. But then I got on the skis. I skied on them for this project I did for Samsung up in Lake Louise. And my te- my good friend Craig Daniels, who had been with me, and we had some technology like skio. On the skis that were measuring things, he was following me with a with a big follow cam, trying to get this footage for them. And and he after about the fifth run, he said, "Dude, I've never seen you ski like this." I, he's like, "If you raced a World Cup right now, you would destroy people." And I was like, "I was like, I know. I feel the same way. It's I'm able to move because the boots flex straight forward instead of out." and because the skis were designed with much less side cut but a slight hinge point in the middle, I was able to hold almost tuck down the steep pitch in in Lake Louise where a C-turn would normally be in a Super G. And he's like, I've never seen anything like this. And that, that got me excited because I felt like my at that point it was really about legacy and what i was giving back to the sport and i felt like if i understood that and i could evolve equipment and ski boots to be able to allow your average person to have that same confidence level and improvement um i'd be doing something good for the sport and it was a bummer that they shut me down because i think in the end it would have been great for head as well um but is what it is
5: okay that must have been very frustrating there was no way to work that out
6: (laughs) johan johan's a peculiar cat uh I love him. He's a good friend. We're friends now, still. Um, but that was a very uh, American business um, litigation. I mean, he had a, he sent me a seven hundred page. He moved forums three times, tied us up, and sent us seven hundred pages for just because I wanted I, mine was one page that I sent him. It was here's what I'm requesting. Here's what we said before. Uh, you're not paying me anything anyway. It's illegal for you to block me from making a living in my in my profession without pay, without compensation. That that's illegal in Colorado, California, anywhere in the U S basically. He moved for him three times to jump that around. All he was trying to do is tie us up until the season started. So I couldn't do it. And um, you know, I I can respect somebody who's efficient at what they want to do. And he was, so I can respect that. But in the end, I think we all lost out.
5: Okay. bomber. after you got involved, turned into more of an expensive boutique ski, ultimately you left and went to cross on tell us about that.
6: Yeah. I think, you know, coming from where I was at that moment where there was still potential to race, there was still this development. Then as that became unrealistic with Johan kind of putting his foot down on me, um, we moved into that other space and it was not where I wanted to be. So, um, I had a contract, I wrote it out, I did my best for them, um, wish them all the best, but wanted to go with a ski company where I could, see my vision really come true and quite honestly i don't care about building skis for super rich people or i think skiing is expensive enough as it is i went through it as a young person i would love to build skis and make them good enough that i could sell uh, a million pairs of skis a year for two hundred dollars a pair and build them for eighty dollars a pair and sell them all direct and make 120 dollars a pair and i make a bunch of money um you know, and even then, if I did that, I'd probably drop the price to 150 because I think it's obnoxious that skiing's as expensive as it is and as inaccessible as it is. Um, and I would love to see that change. That so they were kind of going the opposite direction with cross, and at least we have the you know full reign and really interesting background coming chase coming from aerospace and access to crazy smart engineers and unique performance materials and practices coming from a a industry that's very unlike skiing. Um, and, and we are trying to do some really unique stuff in this first year. I mean, we started in June and we have two different models, three really that are absolutely exceptional at the top of their individual classes in in the sport. And I'm looking forward to next year.
5: Okay. But is your goal with crossing to bring the price down and uh, turn volume way up?
6: Yeah, eventually. Um, you know, I think it'll be some reengineering. I think there'll be, there's a few steps, intermediary steps that, uh, have to be seen to first. Um, and obviously we have to be economically viable to get there as well. So my long-term goal is yes, is that, um, you need a certain economic model to, to make it work. But, uh, I think we're pointed in the right direction. Absolutely. And ideally I'd love to build uh, race skis again. I think it's, it's embarrassing that we don't have any American made race skis and, uh, every other country, as you alluded to before with, you know, Atomic, Rossi, you know, every company, maybe Italy is the only company that doesn't really have a homegrown superpower race ski. But um, I want to build American made race skis and really kind of give the Americans an advantage for once.
5: Let's talk about the crossing skis that are available now. Did you have a hand in developing those?
6: Yeah, hundred percent. I did everything from exact side cut, early rise, exact construction, everything.
5: Okay, so what makes them special and different from what's presently on the market?
6: Um, We'll focus on the one eighteen because that's the one that I did a good job on and got lucky as well. And I, I, it's a twenty-seven meter radius. So if you know anything about radius, that's a very long radius. That's a fist legal giant slalom radius ski, basically. Um, And it's a 188, and so with that long radius, you're not going to get the same turn that you would on an arc, but it's a 118 underfoot, which you wouldn't get that turn even if you made the shovel huge because there's so much torsional force. So I match the point where there's traditional camber, where the ski's this way, to the point where there's early rise, which is really, really subtle. When you stick the skis together and you push the base together, there's a tiny little slot of light that comes in between them uh, earlier. And that's a that the radius that you use there and where that is compared to the side cut, how the ski is still getting wider, and then where that peaks out and then how you use the actual tip curve, which is how the ski comes up off the snow. That's actually what you use to dictate your radius, is that, that early rise in the tip curve. So I'm cheating the system where I have a 27-meter radius ski that you can ski 70 miles an hour on it, and it doesn't jump around. It's not crazy. You can make little slalom turns that aren't arcs. They're just slid, but it's super consistent and reliable and easy to balance on and forgiving. Works awesome in deep powder, slough, chunky snow because the it, just, it doesn't hook you on the tail. You never get stuck in the backseat. You never get pitched forward but then still skis like a 17, 16 meter radius ski when you tip it up because the actual initiation is coming from the curve of the ski versus the side cut. So it's, it's nuanced and it's, uh, I built it very traditionally, You know, nothing magical in it, which again allows me to reduce the cost down. Um, and yeah, I got lucky. I knew it would be a very good powder ski. Uh, I was confident there. What I was shocked at is how good it was on hard snow on ice and on groomed trails. And the reason that it was much better than I thought was because I'd never skied on a ski that was at that shallow a radius. So, you know, the most you see is 22, 23 meters. And even that is usually on a really stiff ski. That's just for like high speed bombing and powder runs, you know, huge lines in Alaska and stuff like that. Um, this thing's a normal construction, fairly soft, but when you ski it on hard snow, it just absolutely rips turns i was my hip was on the ground for six gs turns in a row down a groomer first thing in the season and i I came out of that and i was like it, it exceeded every expectation i had on the harder snow which my goal is always to build a ski that works on a big variety there's lots of companies that build really good skis for one specific condition or type of skier i want something that works for everybody and i got really lucky this year
5: Okay. Conventional wisdom, and needless to say, you're not conventional, is 118 would be a powder ski, not a big mountain Alaska powder ski. And maybe you have 105 or 106 for crud, your daily rider's 95 to 100. Maybe for hard snow, you have something somewhere in the 80s. A, do you agree with that philosophy or is that horseshit?
6: Um, I, I would say it's certainly not horseshit, right? And the reason for that is just, as I just stated right before that was a lot of companies make skis that are good in one narrow segment. So if you love Stokely or you love Blizzard or you love Atomic, you need five pairs of skis and you need the quiver you just said. I would even go narrower than that. I would go down to something in the 70s for a hard ice. If you're an East Coast skier and you're going up to Cannon or or Stowe, you're going to want something narrower than 80s. But but then everything else you said is virtually right, and you're going to have a great time if you can bring five or six pairs of skis and switch from morning to mid lunch to afternoon. If you had a powder day in the morning, and what I I believe that if you do it right, you can have virtually. You still kind of need two pairs. Um, I skied on pretty firm snow. It didn't snow for about three weeks. There was some icy patches. It got scratched down. I didn't. I wouldn't say I enjoyed skiing on the 118s. If I was skiing in Sugarloaf when it hadn't snowed in two weeks and it, you know, that refrozen groom stuff where you barely leave a track in it when you're arcing, right? The 118s probably wouldn't have been a really enjoyable ski there. I would have dropped right down to a 176 underfoot. I mean, a 76 underfoot, um, but a much more mellow radius than than a typical carving ski. And But beyond that, that 118, it covers from Big mountain, Alaska. I mean, like shoots. It's a touring ski. It's super light. It's it's as light as some of the high-level touring skis. Um, you can ski it fast. You ski it in crud, junk. I have some videos of my buddy that I mentioned before just going crazy on the thing. and He's all of 135 pounds soaking wet, and he's on a 188. Uh, 118 underfoot and he's shredding these hard wind-baked sun-baked moguls um, bouncing and shooting around and just landing and they're always right where they belong they're always right you know grips right under his foot he's totally on it and that that ski covers out here it covers every day there's no other ski that i would ski on out here um you know on the east coast you'd want something narrower but i'd ideally like to get it down to two two pairs
5: okay There's a whole school of thought now. Really, uh, the business was changed by the Rossi 106, the yellow Soul 7. And there are people who have been in the business a long time say, this is not good for your knees to have wide skis. Do you have a thought on that?
6: (laughs) Yeah, it sounds like wives' tale stuff to me. I've heard a lot of people saying that, you know, we had fist regulations, right? We scrapped when I was on head. They made the skis. Now – out of university of salzburg which is austrian government controlled and had had, we were kicking the crap out of atomic so of course university of salzburg came up with some data that said if you make the skis two millimeters wider everyone's going to be way more safe so we all had to scrap thousands of pairs of the fastest downhill skis on the planet because they came up with some arbitrary data and then two years later the injuries were worse and they said oh we were wrong and but you couldn't add edge width to make your skis wider. So we scrapped all those skis and started new. And that helped Atomic because we were all back on level playing field. And then two years later, they realized their data was garbage and they, they scrapped it. So it, it's I think that's where that comes from. I would say that a wide ski with a lot of side cut Because your shovel it becomes so big that it actually can hit and has a huge surface area that if you hit a bump or you hit loose snow or a pile of slough, um, you're going to get a huge reaction if it's not designed just right. Um, And that huge reaction oftentimes goes to your knees and uh, your back. And so I would say a wide ski should have very little side cut and you have to figure out a better way to make it turn. If you do that, I don't think it has any impact on safety.
5: Okay, let's talk about materials. The big breakthrough was metal in the 50s and 60s. Then we went to fiberglass, okay? We had the Strato, the VR-17, but then we had Rossi, the Rock 550 for GS that was metal. Then Solomon entered the business. They had a cap ski. So the traditional thought now is you want metal for harder surfaces, for torsional rigidity, and then you talk about 118s. Conventionally, they will have no metal in them. What's your philosophy on materials and construction?
6: Well, metal is not great for torsion in the sense of the properties itself. What it's good for is Torsion and traditional layup is, comes from shearing effect of the of the material. So if you have a bunch of layers, those layers, when they twist, they have to rub against each other. They don't just twist, uh, you know, as one big chunk. They actually shear, and that's where you get your – metal doesn't – it has a hard, hard bonding property. The surface has no other particles. It, it creates a really solid bond, so torsionally it affects it that way. But the property itself, metal twists actually much easier than – Fiberglass. Fiberglass is the strongest for torsional uh, control. Um, the reason we don't use metal traditionally in, in you know wider skis is just weight. You know, it's just too it's just too damn much material. You'd use a piece of metal this wide and uh you know it's it's too much. But the other part, metal's really damp, and wood and metal together have a really interesting frequency um dampening properties. So, you know, we we always use you know good wood cores in our wide skis, but we're using rubber instead of metal. And fiberglass instead of metal so fiberglass to control the torsion because as it gets wider you can really control torsion very effectively Um, you don't add all that weight and then you use rubber inserts around the edges in certain areas to to dampen the vibration and have a damp ski and um again i'm a believer that there's no one way to build a great ski Um, like i said uh, i'm the first to give credit to companies that have built great skis and there's a lot of different ways to go about it I want to do it in a way that's super consistent, gives people a huge range of of you know, conditions that the skis perform optimally on. And a ski, that 118, I put a dude on it the other day who's never skied before. His first day on snow, he's on a 188, 118 underfoot and had an awesome time. They switched him to a Black Crow at lunch because he was curious and he went immediately back to the 118. He said that thing was garbage compared to this. It's so much easier to balance on this and control the edges. So I think that done correctly the ski is going to work better in all conditions and for all skiers. And maybe that's optimistic, but it seems like it's working right now.
5: let's just talk about cores. Cores were all wood. The breakthrough in the seventies was foam. Then we went back to wood. Dina star is putting some foam stringers in. What's your philosophy there?
6: Yeah, I think, I think hybrid. Um, honestly, I think that's the application for carbon fiber and potentially other exotic materials as well as stringers, vertical stringers of carbon fiber, uh, think of like an H box of wood. So an H of really thin, but super dense wood, oak, beech, uh, poplar, you know, maple, um, ironwood. There's all kinds of wood that is, would be really interesting, but super duper thin in an H. So you have an I beam type structure, which adds a lot of the properties, then fill the top and bottom of the H with foam with carbon stringers. Um, Ultimately, I've tried to have that core built for six years. It hasn't happened yet. But I'm, I'm okay. patient, so hopefully, it comes through. I believe that a hybrid core will will be where we end up.
5: Okay, but will foam break down like it did in the '70s, or it's just not really a structural material?
6: No, it's it's not in the '70s. There was they had bad foam. I mean now they have aerospace foam that does. You can have it do anything. It has zero temperature fluctuations. It's that, that can't shatter. It has like a fifty thousand year half life and uh, fully recyclable. I mean my goal ultimately is to have an exoskeleton ski. So carbon fiber, um, metal elastomers frame, and then foam injected, and then metal top or potentially fiberglass or, or a high density rubber polymer top over it. And then you'd have a ski that everything was dictated by this skeletal system underneath. And that's how all your flex was dictated. The foam dampens it and the tops just to protect it. When you're done with a ski, you just heat it up, peel it apart and everything's recyclable. I think that's, it's a shame that nobody's taken that seriously. There's millions and millions and millions of cubic meters of waste coming out of the ski industry every single year because of that.
5: Okay if one listens to you in the landscape and the news and podcasts, et cetera, you seem to know everybody. You have a relationship with all these technical people. Did they come to you because of your fame or is your personality such that people end up being drawn to you?
6: I don't know. Um, I only know the results. I can't speak to the motivation. Um, I know a lot of people. I enjoy learning and talking about, concepts and ideas. I'm not a talk about this person or gossip type person. I like talking about inspirational things that um haven't been done or, you know, creative ways to collaborate. Uh so I think that's appealing. I think we're in an interesting time right now where, you know, connectivity is much easier than it was ten years ago, right? With the internet. And I mean you can get to anybody. So if somebody wants to get to me, they can get to me. So um but yeah it's I, I feel very lucky to have um had the relationships I've had and, and continue to grow, uh, because, you know, I, I don't know nearly enough yet. And, uh, I learn from a lot of really smart people that I surround myself with all the time.
5: Okay. But you're involved in your app, SkiO, you have the ski company, you have the educational thing. How many projects are you actively involved in? And what are they? Th-
6: 13, uh, really actively. Um, but there's another six or seven that are kind of where well, i'm, a, I'm a, a role player um but not it's not my primary thing uh snow cookie which is skio cross ski company icl is my academy revo sunglasses goggles helmet development trying to make things safer and better um my relationship up here in big sky which is spanish peaks moonlight forward facing real estate all that stuff kuto which is a uh, C2C booking platform. So you would book me to take you skiing here in Big Sky versus having to pay 800 bucks for an instructor. Um, A really good dude uh, friend started that, and I help him. Aztec, my clothing company that I'm not officially involved with any longer because they're kind of plateauing. But um, Alchemist Alpine, a company out of L.A., cannabis and medical stuff around cancer research and swim pals a wearable like a watch that's drowning prevention after losing my daughter we we got really involved in that and want to stop that from happening so we're inventing some new stuff i'm working with the nest guys jamie simonoff and guys at at uh, amazon for all that Snowbond, which is the indoor ski hall i'm a shareholder and it's outside of denver now but we're working on partnering with resorts and replicating that so that in these population hubs in Houston and Dallas and Atlanta, you can have these kids who would never be exposed to skiing go in and for 30 bucks experience skiing and then package something together to have them go up to a local area for a tenth the cost and uh, and get out there. OpEx is a technologies company that I'm in through my roommate at CVA and they optimize um, everything from data security. Now that especially with COVID, everyone's going digital. It's a huge new push in that space. And they're ninjas. Flow code is Tim Armstrong's company. Uh, I was the CEO at AOL when I was there 10 years ago, and we became friends. And that's an advanced QR code. It's the fastest, quickest scanning QR code. So like now when you go into a restaurant, your menu is that QR code. He has those that take you to a flow page that can do incredible stuff he's just a wizard uh romp and roost we're building kids stuff because we have six six kids alive we would have seven if we hadn't lost my daughter um parents stuff these you know uh pack and plays and travel accessories when you go to a restaurant how come it's such a pain in the ass with the, the high chairs and all that and then Zortech, which is a shoe company that's doing smart shoes so very similar to um Toskio, uh where you get all this data out of your skiing the smart shoes i want to put in schumann's resonance into the shoe with a PZo, so you're basically like you're walking around with your feet in the grass or feet in the dirt all day because i think this electromagnetic field uh, disturbances we're getting right now are kind of messing with a lot of people and so and then at the same time as giving you schumann's resonance all day in your shoes they're also giving you you know, heart rate variability and steps and stress levels and stress patterns. Hey, when you walk down this street, you're super stressed every day. Maybe you don't walk down that street. So, um, it's a, that's, there's about, like I said, six more, but, um, so those are the, those are the main ones that I'm pretty heavily involved with.
5: Okay. How do you have the time? How do you have the time to have even one of those in ski?
6: Those, those fit into, uh, the 6% of the time that I'm not, uh, dealing with my kids and, and, uh, and wife and eating, drinking wine.
5: But are you actively involved? Needless to say, having your name attached to something is beneficial to an enterprise. But to what? Those, degree? Are, those
6: are all those are all very active. Those are things where I have calls, maybe not daily, but very active. All the way from R and D to marketing to partnerships and getting things lined up. I mean, everything. Those are those are heavy involvement, and I'm. I'm efficient. I am. I mean, you know, I, I drop the ball all the time, and I every one of them, I'm very upfront. I'm like, look, if I if I tell you I'm not not getting on that call, I'm not getting on the call. If you want to go find somebody else, fine. But like, you know, so I'm open because I don't have the ability. I'm not a nine to fiver. I have I literally fit that into the ten percent of the time where I'm not managing my kids and all that. I mean, we have we have three kids who are two or under in the house, and it's there's not a lot of time that I can get this. This is a miracle that I've had this time. My wife's being an angel right now.
5: Okay. Just to go a little deeper, and then just a couple more topics. Uh, what's the difference between Skeo and this product that is being heavily hyped now, Carve?
6: Yeah, Carve. I mean, honestly, I-, I love what Carve was doing. I've been in conversations with them. I know the problem with that is their mechanism. So they're doing it on the boot. They're doing it in the insole of the boot. It, you know, I'm never one to hate on anybody, but to disrupt somebody's boot, you have to you know, insert this thing underneath your footboard. You're doing you're talking about if you're doing your boots right, there's no space in there to put that in there. So you're doing boot modifications. But then but then also you're only able to capture certain data because the boot only does certain things. And what we did, ours is three sensors. It's one on either ski just in front of the binding and then one on the center of your chest. So we're talking about rotational force. It uses your phone and all the telemetry in your phone as well to hub all that. Um, but we, we can do rotation, fore-aft movement. They do that through sensors in your foot. But again, you're, you're getting, when I skied on carve, I ripped 15 ridiculously hard GS turns. Perfect balance, you know, in and out, Consecutive. It said that I was sucking. And then I slid a bunch of turns, just kind of bopping along super low edge angle. And it was like, great job. Great job. So I think they have work to do on their algorithm engine. I think there's a place for it. I think a ton of people are going to benefit from it, but they're in a, they they went a route that was more difficult to achieve what I think ultimately is the goal, which is to have people have really good, clean, objective data that represents what it's supposed to represent. I can tell you from my experience, I was skiing well and it was saying I was sucking and then vice versa. Ours is all built around you know, the algorithm is, is legit. There's no, if you're skiing better, it knows you're skiing better. And the, and the centerpiece on your chest is really, really important based because as you know, skiing is so much of it's how you're rotating, how you're initiating, how your fore aft balance is shifting through a turn, what your skis are doing vibrationally, if your edges are matched, um, what your pressure is on either edge, we can get all that, um, you know, very easily as well as, you know, all the other things that they can get.
5: Okay. I grew up during the ski boom. Okay. Everybody skied in the sixties and early seventies. Having lived long enough, I know there are other things, you know, there was a snowboard boom. Snowboard is actually decreasing slightly. Not that it's just a big thing. How do we reinvigorate skiing?
6: Um, I think accessibility. Uh, if you look at the, the barriers to entry in skiing, it's no wonder that I, we have like an 80% attrition rate. So eight out of 10 people who ski for the first time, don't try it again. Um, that's been flat for about the last 35 years. So um, that's a problem. <laughs> if, you're, if you're charging people enormous amounts, the snow bond. So if you combine just and this is a big part of it, right? This is why all these projects become doable is because they're not these off on tangents, siloed little things—they're all connected. Snowbond is an indoor ski hall that allows people to learn to ski in about 30 minutes, from never having put ski boots on before to being able to go up onto a resort and ski. Blue runs, snowplow, turn either direction, hockey stop on either side in 20 minutes for $30. So I want to replicate that in population hubs and I want to tie it to the resorts because the lifetime value of a skier at a resort for Vail, for you know Aspen, whoever, that lifetime value is enormous. They can afford to give them a break for that first time to get them interested, get them psyched, um, get them hooked, if you will. So that whole package is one piece that ties in with Crossin because I'm building special skis that actually work better on the carpet because it is this crazy you know big inside treadmill with carpet on it or plasticky carpet and the skis don't work well they're just using typical skis detuning them and like okay give it a go they need skis designed for that so we're doing that with cross and my goal over the next four years is to reduce the cost of skis um Go direct to customers. I mean, we see retails going in the tank, right? Retails tanking everywhere and COVID only accelerated that. But there's no reason you need to go into a ski shop to buy skis. Like there just isn't like 30 day money back guarantee. Here's the skis, 200 bucks. Instead of selling them to a retailer for 300 bucks, and then they sell them to you for 700 bucks, we just sell them straight to you. We can make our margins, everything works, and you pay 200 bucks. So reduce the cost of everything incrementally there. Um, you know, they've already done certain steps the Icon Pass, Epic Pass those are, I think, incremental steps in the right direction. I honestly think there's going to be an, a new boom of very small resorts. You need traffic for that, and it hasn't supported that in the past because we've had no growth in the sport. But once these things are put together, there's these adventure parks that are incredibly profitable in Europe, and they drive people to these other more exclu- more exclusive, more expensive, involved operations. I think that when we spool out 35, 50, 100 snow bonds in these population hubs, and then we can run a ski resort that only operates from December 18th till March and it has two lifts. You're only accommodating people who are the first three years of skiing, and then once they're better, sure, graduate up to some other place. But as you know, I mean, Christina Kosnick, Lindsey Vaughn, you know, myself, Stenmark, uh, Anya Pearson, they grew up on mountains that were no bigger than my driveway is. Like, I mean, it's, we're talking a couple hundred vertical feet. You don't need, uh, you know, the Pyrenees to, to go out and enjoy skiing and have a great time. So, all those things I think play together. I think the industry has been remarkably inefficient at converting new skiers and, you know, but look at Vale's stock prices. I mean, they're doing all right. So I can't really pick on them too much, but, I think that's you know, you go through the early life complaining about all these people doing things wrong. And at some point you got to step up and start realizing somebody's just got to do it. So that's the phase I'm in now. And again, that parlays with Revo, some, you know, everything, everything I work on is all aligned in terms of that stuff. So it ends up being a bit more efficient that way.
5: Okay. Very quickly, two quick tips, pieces of advice for people who are experienced skiers technique wise.
6: Um, yeah, I mean, to me, upper lower body separation is the biggest conundrum for people is with side cut skis. Now you can commit down the hill so much more. If your ski is finishing a turn coming around and you're used to coming up, becoming neutral, and then initiating your new turn and going down and making a turn, you've seen it in world cup for years now, but I think the exciting thing is get on a really good ski. Stokely makes a really good carving ski. We make, I believe, the best carving ski. Um, A bunch of companies make a good one, and by good I mean super reliable. It's never gonna do anything crazy on you because what we're talking about is finishing your turn As you're coming across the fall line, your upper body goes over the top of your skis in a low position. So for that little moment, you're basically just letting go. You're relaxing. Your knees are super bent. Your ass is really far back. You're just traveling over your skis straight down the hill. As that happens, you're putting yourself in a position where you can – back up a ski edge angle that's really high and it's basically upper lower body separation you're continuing to turn one way while your body's going over the top and then your edges switch really quickly from one edge to the other and the skis initiate so quickly that they dive down underneath you and pick you back up and i think for experienced skiers that's a really something they haven't felt before and it's it changes entirely the 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 sport because you're in a long legged really powerful position all the time the only time where you're in that crunched up awkward phase there's no pressure on you're you just flying down the hill and for me that's how you know that that's the most exciting thing about carving skis
5: okay needless to say you can make a deal with any of the major companies an endorsement deal and get a big check are you into it with cross and not only to make the skis for the upside and to what degree you know it's some of these figures are published but we don't know what you did with the money how are you doing financially and how are your compatriots who were successful on the circuit doing financially
6: Um, I mean, I'm still working, so I'm not doing that good. Um, but it granted my kids and wife cost me a lot of money. They know how to, they know how to spend it. But, um, you know, I think we're, we're comfortable. I I'm very fortunate that I do things that I love to do and I don't do them for money, but I'm fortunate enough to be valuable enough to companies where I can get compensated in a way that makes things, makes the wheel turn in it. Um, but you know, the other skiers, generally um you know if you weren't number 1 in the world and winning a lot of races you're working day job now i mean Europe's different they're icons they they get sort of taken care of because they're in these semi you know socialist type com- countries where they get a lodge or they they do different things and they're kind of set up but they also have such a different culture over there where it's not an economic ladder they just they like to do things so they just run a restaurant and host people because they like to um, but you know, I, I could, if you got any tips, I could certainly use some cash, but, um, I'm doing okay.
5: Okay. Do you regret not going to college?
6: No, no. I went to lots of colleges. I just didn't go to college per se. Um, I was at colleges all over the country and all over the world. Um, but no, no, I, I, I'm an, I'm an easy study. Like coaches said I was uncoachable. I think that's not really true. I think they were just beating their head against the wall on something that I was very committed to. And unfortunately, didn't align with what they wanted me to do. But I learned things really quickly, more or less stuff that I need to figure out. I, I can figure out really quickly. And as I said, I'm, I have some of the best mentors in the world, the smartest people um, that I've found. And uh, I learned really quickly from them.
5: Okay. You've gone on record for political issues and how you view the country. What is your view of the overall state of the United States? And do we have any hope
6: uh yeah we have hope um not a lot but you know the the for me the problem is that we've we've diverged away from sort of the concept the concept was that the people would sort of semi-govern that we would but when you have 300 million people with hugely diverse backgrounds and priorities and all this stuff you you have to modify the system it, it can't be a, a you know nationally governed it has to be state governed i think micro micro governing bodies need to take more responsibility and 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 have flexibility there. Um, that to me is is where our salvation lies is, you know, you can have differing views, you can have different philosophies and different lifestyles and different stuff, but it still has to fall within the parameters of the national. That was the philosophy in the beginning, but it, it wasn't so real then because communication took three weeks to get a letter from <laughs> Colorado back to Washington, but, um, or Virginia. But in this case, you know, you just have to, we can't have this, this crazy, um, you know, these extremist groups. That that stuff is garbage. I, I don't know the solution there. Um that that's problematic because there really are hate groups I and mean, they just they're just angry and want to do damage. But some of that comes from a cultural um, feel good about what you're doing and feel good about everybody. And that's because we've sucked for quite a while. I mean, I'm not a US hater, but I find it really funny that people say we're the best country in the world when they haven't really been to a lot of other countries. I've been to a lot of countries and I can say, I think Daniel Tosh says it is, like, have you ever been to Fiji? Like <laughs> maybe go there. You've been to New Zealand? Like, you know, universal health care. like you could show up there and break your leg and they take care of everything for you. No bills, no not perfect healthcare. Like, you know, uh, I think there's a lot of things that, unfortunately, our government's incapable of doing because of the structure. And I don't know if that's going to change. But on a state and micro level, I think as we transition the renewable energies and we kind of, I think we're going to see a massive influx of job creation and, and hopefully more productive direction than we've been for the last 200 years um, with the you know fossil fuels revolution. that was That was inherently terminal. Like it didn't, you know, capitalism is terminal in and of itself. You can't always be a... Um, you know, a capitalist culture exclusively. There always has to be some balance. We already have that. The irony is that people ignore the fact that we've been, we have socialist programs we have since the beginning. We've, we've always had them. So it's just finding the balance there and, and hopefully um, getting people excited to embrace the differences of our country. Because unfortunately, or fortunately, there's always going to be huge variance in our, in our people in, our, in this country.
5: Final question. This is one of perception. For those of us who follow ski racing, yes, you had that instant success with the K24s. You did very well in the 2002 Olympics. Then there was all this hope and this hype, which we get every four years in the Olympics in the United States. You were the golden boy. The success was not there. Needless to say, also what I learned today, you're talking about certain equipment issues which were not well publicized. In addition, you've gone your own way in a country that thrives on group paint think but all the pushing forward is by individuals who are frequently hated and then lauded in addition you commented did the uh play by play so to speak of the 2018 olympics and as opposed to being bob biati just being a national cheerleader you got into the specifics of racing and took a lot of flack for that so the question is how do you feel about your perception of yourself? Do you think it should be changed? Do you care if it's changed? Are you bothered if it's not changed?
6: <laughs> no, I'm not bothered and I don't care. Um, you know, I feel like uh, that was a big learning experience for me. It was 06, right? Right? I was petulant. And I, I take responsibility for my own behavior, but it was also not an anomaly. I did, it wasn't like that was my time where I blew up. I was that way all my entire life. And the fact was, I was unapologetic. I just, I said, look, I did my best. I I won the, I was winning the combined by three seconds, right? Ted ended up winning the gold there. I was three seconds ahead of him after the first run of slalom and I was disqualified. Like, you know, there's things that happen that they could have changed everything there. They didn't. Um You know, when I walked away from that, I was definitely, uh, you know, I was immature and I was not prepared for what I was dealing with. I was the top guy on world cup. I had, I was taking 90% of all the demands and press and everything else. And I just, I wasn't good enough and I needed to improve. And I knew that. So, um, when I came back after the Oh nine semi retirement into 2010, um, I was really proud of how I'd evolved in that four year span and I came back a different type of person, much more capable, m- a much more broad skill set, capable of dealing with real adult things and, and being clear about my prerogatives, but also much more, um, effectively talking about what I felt was important and how I could make that work with your average you know, viewer who's just an American who wants you to say, go America, we're the best, I'm going to win for you guys. Like, I understood that in that time frame. And it took that failure in 06 and all the fallout of that to learn. I mean, it's just the, the reality is you learn through those struggles. And, and uh, I, I, I'm super, I wouldn't change a thing about that. It was an ass kicking at the time, but it's not the first ass kicking I've taken. It certainly won't be the last. So to come into 10 and win three medals and really kind of give the American people what they wanted in my on my own terms and with that expression and my, my comfort level. Unfortunately, I missed that stop on the, on the attributes tra- train uh, when I was being created that I didn't feel satisfaction about that part of it, of like I proved anyone wrong or anything. I just felt good that I'd evolved and, and hopefully matured a little bit where I was more capable and, and not making the same stupid mistakes I'd make, made before.
5: Yes, but at the 2010 Olympics, Lindsey Vonn was the heroine with one gold medal And you had a better performance than anyone had ever had in the winter Olympic skiing as a male. And they gave you a fraction of the attention that didn't bother you. Yeah. But,
6: but as, as you said, no, as you said, there's nothing, especially American culture, putting somebody on a pedestal and then they want to knock the pedestal out, you know, and then they want to build you back up. And then they want to knock the pedestal out. The thing that was interesting about that is because I'd retired in 09 and I didn't start my Olympic run until August. I mean, I was, fat and out of shape and had no skis, no technician, no nothing going into the World Cup season. Um, I, they didn't have any time. You know, before 06 and that summer going into 06, I was on a cover of Time, Newsweek, Men's Journal, Sports Illustrated. You know, that was the buildup. That was the pedestal. They had no time. Nobody could scramble. They'd already, they'd already put Lindsay as their person. They were pot committed to her. So the fact that she delivered, they were on board. They were like, yay, see, we were right. She's our American hero. And they had, they, the, for me, I was a side note because they had, they couldn't validate, you know, not the individuals, but mainstream press likes to be right, right? So uh, the fact that I did well didn't help them. They were, they weren't upset individually, but as a, as an industry, they were upset because they didn't have the, the scoop. They didn't have it, you know, set up right to capitalize on that. And so, um, it's exactly what I expected. And as I said, I, I was very aware of that by that point and it didn't upset me at all. I was really proud and excited to have, you know, like I said, matured and got better and then delivered. I mean, at the end of the day, it doesn't matter how good you are, how mature you are. It comes down to hundreds of a second. You know how tight those races were. And at the end of the day, those performances that I put down there, my, the actual skiing I did to get that gold medal in the combined, what I did in that slalom course was, was nothing short of a miracle. I mean, I was, that was the, that was the pinnacle of what you'd hope for of yourself in an Olympic environment. And, uh, yeah, to do it after having let people down and let myself down the way I did in 06 was, was, yeah, a miracle. And then obviously 14, I pulled off, you know, a a bronze medal that I was as proud of as any medal that I'd ever, you know, had in any event.
5: Why is that?
6: The the night before my brother had supposed to go to that, that Olympics that he was going to go as a snowboarder. It would have been the first one we'd been at together. He passed away in 2012. Um, and before I, I should have won the downhill. I was crushing guys in the training runs. Conditions changed. We could we didn't have the skis to be competitive on the bottom. I was losing a second and a half on the bottom, just going straight across, you know, 800 yards. Um, and I ended up losing in, in my stronger events and the Super G was kind of the last one. And, uh, the night before I took my goggle strap off my helmet and I replaced it with a, with one of those, um, physio bands, you know, those bands like the red yeah. and green that you use yeah. to stretch out. And so I replaced it with one of those. And I thought about doing that for 10 years. I don't know. It's I put it in the wind tunnel. we tested, we knew that that made a difference. And I said, look, tomorrow a hundredth is going to make the difference. And so I replaced that for the first time in 430 world cup races, I replaced it and tied for third place. So 100th slower and I have no medal. And I come out of that Olympics you know, dealing with all the press of no medals, just that one bronze medal saves all that stuff. But also it was, it was really indicative of my level of, of commitment and, and, you know, and ingenuity and, and, and self-reliance. I mean, no one did it. I was the only dude in the race with a rubberized goggle strap that in a wind tunnel, I know makes 0.06% difference, which was theoretically in a, in a minute 42nd race, which that was, is a second. So, and I, and I, 100th slower and I get no medal. So you tie for second, you're 100 slower. You just get a bronze. No problem. You tie for third, 100 slower, you get nothing. Bronze medal is important. And at that time, I was the oldest Olympic medalist in, in history globally. Um, it was, it was massive. And and to know that all other things excluded that goggle strap that I'd done for the first time in my whole life, uh, made the difference, got me a medal. Um, was, was interesting. And obviously, uh, you know, felt like, uh, you know, it was, it was a testament to my commitment and a representation of my, my commitment to getting better and, and not leaving any stones unturned.
5: Okay. And the comments that you got in reaction to your, uh, play by play at 2018, will you do that again? Did that hurt? What was the blowback from the people on the inside who hired you?
6: No, they loved it. I mean, we got way more positive feedback than negative, um, because anyone who was a skier appreciated it because it actually instructed them and informed them of what was going on. They found that really educational and interesting and much more than just a cheerleader. Um, which was my intent. I mean, honestly, I feel like one of the biggest failings of, of the ski industry has been education has been informing people, you know, democratizing information. And, um, so that's where I, the way I approached it. I, 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 after that Olympics, it was live primetime in the U S. So it was a a big one for me to just know that I could do and be there and and execute. But, uh, afterwards I was like, I'll do it again, but you're going to pay me 10 times as much and you're going to fly my family. I can't be away from my family for three weeks and in China or Korea. Um, and I think they see it as talent is more or less interchangeable. And in this case, um, you know, they hired Lindsay, which I'm, I love Lindsay. So I'm looking forward to seeing what she can do.
5: And where are all your globes and medals and trophies?
6: Uh, bunch are in the Ski Museum in New Hampshire, actually. A buddy, uh, Zoom, I was on a Zoom call earlier. He was there skiing at Cannon. He Zoomed us um, from in there, but uh, I don't know. A bunch of them are all around different places. I don't. I don't think I have any in my house here.
5: Yeah, so it's kind of like a musician who keeps their Grammy in the bathroom. In any event, Bodie, thanks so much for talking with me really been great. You've been able to answer questions that I've never seen either asked or answered in all of the ski media. So I really appreciate that.
6: appreciate it. Great to talk to you.
5: Okay. Hopefully I can see you on the hill one day. And I'm one of those people, I do have those five pairs of skis. So I know what you're talking about. If you got one pair of skis, it would work. I'm all
6: ears. I'll get you sorted right out.
5: Till next time. This is Bob Lefsex.